Hello and welcome to the Medical Protection Podcast Case Files series. I'm your host, Dr. Ellen Walsh, and today I'm fortunate enough to be joined by Dr. Sam King. Sam works in general practice in Auckland and is a full-time MLC. Sam, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I understand you were involved in the case that we're going to discuss today. Um, it's a really interesting case. Would you mind giving our listeners a quick overview of what happened? Yeah, of course. So just so for the listeners who don't live in New Zealand, so I, I live in Auckland, New Zealand, and uh, in New Zealand, we are a no-fault jurisdiction. So what that means is that we virtually have no litigation here. All of the complaints about uh, clinicians goes through an agency called the Health and Disability Commission. And I think that's similar to the Ombudsman in the United Kingdom. In this particular case, uh, there was a 76-year-old woman who saw six GPs and one nurse practitioner in a medical centre over a three-year period with what was thought to be recurrent urinary tract infections or UTIs. She was prescribed multiple courses of antibiotics despite no bacterial growth in the urine samples. After three years, she was eventually referred to the urology service where she was diagnosed with uh, late bladder cancer. So it's quite a sad case, and I think there are lots of learning points here for our listeners. Thanks, Sam. That's a really helpful summary. To better understand how the case affected the GPs, I'd like us to listen to a short dramatised clip which features the voice of one of the GPs who were involved in the case. I was one of about five GPs who saw this patient over a number of years. I, sorry, talking about it still gets to me. She was in her late 70s and had quite a few different health problems. I was new to the practice. Actually, I I had only been in general practice for three months. I wasn't her main GP. I saw her a few times with dysuria and each time I just thought she had another bout of cystitis. Even though the MSU was negative and it always showed blood. I could see the records left by the other doctors, but I really should have questioned the diagnosis. I know now she should have been referred much sooner. If we'd done that, her cancer would have been picked up and treated earlier. Of course, I've apologised and we've made changes to the practice since then, but... But still. This scenario shows that there was lots of healthcare professionals involved in this patient's care pathway over those um, several years. And I'd like to talk to you today to explore a little bit about the errors that this case highlights and what the individual doctors can do in a day-to-day basis to try and reduce their risk of errors and also the importance of learning from them. Is that something that you see in your cases in your work as an MLC in Auckland? Oh, definitely. Um, Some of the cases we see uh, where there's been a clear error by a number of clinicians, it's, it's really heartbreaking because as clinicians, of course, we all know that it could be any one of us going through this and but you do see the same kinds of errors um, repeatedly in different cases and so I think there's some really good things that we can learn from the case today. Yeah it's something that I see a lot in my cases here in in Ireland as well Um, and I think the thing that I always say to my doctors is that 
error is common. It happens in clinical life and it is normal. But what we can do is try and learn from that. And the errors can be big or small. Um, in this case, it was big, but it was a lot of little errors that all added up in the end. Um, what are the common factors that you think that you see that lead to lead to these kinds of adverse incidents in clinical practice? In this particular case, there were both um, individual clinician errors, and but also the system that they worked in was also, I think, contributed. You know, we're all human and we do work in an imperfect system and um, the system in New Zealand anyway is under huge pressure as a result of COVID. It might be, I suspect that's the way it is around the world. You know, and it's, so it's not surprising that errors, both big and small, are relatively frequent. And of course, most of the time, we it's fine. Most of the time, there's no significant adverse outcome. And uh, so we carry on. And as clinicians, I think we are continually learning. And, you know, all of us, of course, have to keep up with our medical education, you know, looking at best practice guidelines and which are constantly evolving. Um, but knowing that we will make mistakes, I think it's really important for listeners to remember that the systems that you personally have in place and that your workplace have in place will increase the likelihood that the mistakes we make are picked up early and that patients don't end up um, coming with adverse outcomes. I think that's right. I think from an organisational point of view, it's important that the policies and protocols that are in place are fit for purpose and robust. So in this case, there was um, an elderly patient presenting over a long period of time. Um, so I think for the organisation, it's around what do they do with patients presenting with similar symptoms repeatedly and are the right investigations being ordered and are they being followed up? And is that something that was picked up in this case? Were there issues around that? Yeah, continuity of care between clinicians is a big issue, as you will know, in um, cases where you, you have an adverse outcome. And in this case, there were, you know, six GPs and a nurse practitioner involved in the care of the patient in this one medical centre. And it's clear that no one really had an overall view of this patient. And I think that's where part of the issue was. And that's something that it's the organisation um, would normally you would expect to have a policy around how they're going to ensure that you that there is good continuity of care. In New Zealand, what often happens now because GP practices are extremely busy and often it can take two or three weeks to book in with your regular GP. So they have an acute GP on the day and which and that means that you don't get to see your regular GP and you might only see that this acute GP once and you might not see them again. And in cases like this where you've got a bladder infection, this patient very likely booked in with the acute doctor, which is why I think she saw so many clinicians at any one time. And so the question really is, um, what's the role of the enrolled GP? I don't know if you have enrolled GPs. I'm not sure if you understand what I mean by that, but in New Zealand, we have the enrolled GP. But what was the policy of the medical centre around one person taking responsibility for these multiple presentations, for what is really a very common presentation in general practice? We see... Um, older women in particular with urinary tract symptoms on a regular basis. And the majority of the time, that's all it is. It's, it's simply a urinary tract infection. We treat it and uh, the, 
the infection goes away and then you carry on and they might get you know an infection once every few months not unlike this particular lady uh, but there was just something different about this this case and sadly it wasn't picked up because there was no uh, overall view that any one doctor had. Yeah, we have similar problems here in Ireland and the UK. We have registered GPs, but again, because it's so difficult to get timely appointments, people do see the on-call GP or they go to the out-of-hour service and then they see GPs who don't have that knowledge of that patient over a long period of time and sometimes don't even have access to the red medical records and i guess that's where good record keeping comes in a, a good documentation of the assessment a differential diagnosis and a clear management plan that's conveyed to the patient but we know that gps are busy and it's not always possible for them to do complete records but um, good record keeping is definitely something that I talk a lot about because it is the cornerstone of um, good clinical care in these days when there isn't that traditional registered primary GP. Um, and, and as you say, that is something that was a feature of this um, case with six GPs and a nurse practitioner seeing the patient over three years. So I guess the thing that um, comes out to me from this is the importance of communication between um, individual team members. Is that something you talk about with your um, in your day to day work as a medical legal consultant? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's what I find heartbreaking is, you know, you've got a competent doctor that you're speaking with, you know, who's got a complaint, but their medical records have let them down because their notes have been poor. It's actually very difficult to demonstrate really good care uh, because sometimes it can look as though an assessment was really cursory and uh, because they didn't document all the negatives, they didn't, you know, write a full history. And they might not have added safety netting advice, for example. And, and those things make such a difference when you're trying to explain your care when there's been an adverse outcome. So, yeah, we see that all the time. I think another thing about clinical records is that some doctors don't make full use of it and that they don't look back to see what the patient came for the previous time or look at those results. And I, I don't know what happened in this particular case, but I suspect that a number of the GPs didn't look back at the previous urine result and think, oh, there was no bacteria growing. Oh, there was no bacteria growing then either. And so she had, you know, multiple samples taken where they never actually ever grew anything. But no one doctor was able to have that little warning bell go off for them to say there's something else going on here. So yeah, medical records are are crucial. But as you say, you know, GPs or doctors in general are very busy. So that's often why the clinical notes are possibly not as good as we would want them to be. And I think we're all guilty of that, to be honest. Absolutely. And that's something that comes up time and again in all facets of the work that we do is to, um, doctors saying, my notes are generally very good, but on this occasion, it was a busy day. Um, I got distracted. Somebody somebody asked me something and I didn't finish the note the way that I would have liked to. And that brings me on to distractions. Distractions are really common in clinical practice and they are a factor in a lot of adverse incidents and errors. So 
Do you see that in your cases? Um, what kind of distractions do your doctors talk about uh, that might perhaps be reduced to try and reduce the incidence of errors? In primary care, uh, it's really normal for GPs to be interrupted during a consultation because the nurse needs something, you've got some you know, patient with an urgent need and you've got to rush off or phone calls that come in or whatever that happens to be. So it's, it's common to have interruptions. And so you can lose your train of thought. You can, be, um, you can even be distracted by the patient in front of you when you've got a patient who comes in with three or four problems, for example, and they're moving from one to the other and jumping around and it's easy to lose your flow. In the hospitals, uh, for junior doctors in particular, that beeper is always going off. There's always some demand from it. You know, the nurses want you to chart this or come and recite this IV or whatever that happens to be. And so it's easy to lose track of what you're meant to be doing. And so it might be that you haven't finished that clinical note. It might be that you actually haven't ordered that test appropriately or, um, you know, um, spoken to the patient and, informed them of something that you need to and I think that goes back to um, the need to have a really good system you have to have a, your own system that is robust so that things yes. don't get missed and however you might do that and in this particular case you know for primary care doctors often that means putting a tracking task into the into the computer system to say, oh yes, I need to send that referral off or I need to check that particular um, test result. And uh, for the hospital doctors, usually the junior staff have copious amounts of notebooks and things like that that they write in to make sure that nothing is missed. And um, just having a robust system, it helps you to relax because you know you've got it all in hand and it means that patients are also uh, safer. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, there's a lovely study that shows up to 10% of all serious errors are caused by distractions. And that's the day-to-day -day distractions. The receptionist coming in going, can you just do this urgent prescription or the bleep going off for a junior doctor, as you say. And multitasking, while we all think we're great at it, it really does affect your ability to concentrate and manual dexterity if you're in the middle of doing a procedure it can affect the outcome um, and I know I'm guilty of that I think I'm great at multitasking but I know in reality that I'm not and that's the other thing is trying trying to reduce distractions and avoid multitasking where possible and um, so if you were going to give your members advice about how to reduce their risk of errors what is the one top piece of advice that you would give them if you were talking them if you were talking to them gosh one piece of advice it's hard to narrow it down to one piece of advice to be honest I think aside from really good top three maybe top three if, if one's difficult top three I think in in this specific case that we've been looking at uh, trying to make use of guidelines is really helpful, particularly in this case, it was a junior doctor. Uh, she'd only been in general practice for a short time. So referring to the guidelines to refresh your memory and just think, oh yeah, that's right, I need to think about this. It's rare, but it's significant. Uh, I think that's really helpful. And certainly that's what I do in my own practice. I constantly refer to our local health pathways uh, in order to remind myself, oh yeah, that's what I need to be doing. And those things change all the time. Um, 
communication with the patient, um, a lot of that's around making sure that you enlist the help of the patient. So if you if you are thinking about, oh, we need to get this result, and in this particular case, the nurse practitioner had said to the patient, I'm going to do another urine result, and if it's not, if it's negative, it doesn't grow any bacteria, then we need to do more tests. So she advised the patient of that, and that enlists the patient's help. And so that you're working together with the patient rather than the patient just sitting there passively. And, you know, you, you're the one that has to make sure that all those, all those details get taken care of. So, you know, making sure that the patient knows if they're having tests, that um, how to get the results and all those sorts of things. So communicating with the patient effectively, I think, uh, makes a big difference in terms of uh, keeping you safe and keeping your patient safe. And of course, we've already touched on clinical notes. Yeah, definitely. I agree with all of that. That's that's exactly what I would be advising as well. And one of the things that struck me in this case is the anchoring bias that all the GPs seem to have when they saw the patient, that common things are common and therefore the symptoms were suggestive of a UTI and cystitis. And of course, common things are common. But what struck me was that no one seemed to take a step back and look at the whole care pathway. What was happening to this lady over that two or three year period to generate a differential diagnosis? And that's where the guidelines come in. They are really useful for reminding you of the other things that it could be so that you can consider the correct diagnosis as a possibility. So for me, as well as the communication, it's the careful review of recent consultations, the last two or three maybe, um, particularly in patients who are repeat attenders with the same thing. And the one, the other thing that struck me, and you touched on this just there, was that this was a junior doctor. She said she'd only been in practice as a GP for three months. And I suppose what I was wondering was whether there was any team dynamics within the practice that might have felt to her as an obstruction to seeking advice, saying to the other GPs, one of the more senior GPs, this lady keeps coming back. Should I be thinking of something else? Do you see those team dynamics, those obstructions coming up in your cases that might contribute to errors that might have otherwise been caught? In primary care, I think there's a, the hierarchies are relatively flat. And so in my experience anyway, practices um, generally are very supportive of their junior staff. And there's often a door open to say, if you need something, you know, come and knock on my door. There are lots of corridor conversations. Probably where I see hierarchy playing a bigger role is in the hospitals, where you've got the consultant, you've got registrars, and then you've got the, you know, the house officers. And the power differentials, I think, can be very significant. And I don't know why, but in medicine, we're often scared to speak up without seniors and uh, sometimes I think we don't want to appear stupid it might be that junior doctors are wanting to get on a training scheme so they want to come across as though they've got they've got everything under control and they they know what they're doing and there's a lot of pressure to perform and I think for those reasons it's hard for junior doctors to speak up in the hospital systems 
and it's wonderful if you've got a good relationship with um, the senior doctor that you're working with, but that isn't always the case. And I think when you don't get on with them, when you, when you have a difficult relationship, it, this can become a barrier to um, being able to ask those simple questions. And so for any listeners who are senior clinicians, um, it's, I think this is a good time to think about the relationship that you do have with your junior staff and is it easy for them to speak up and have you encouraged them or even invited them to ask questions and just saying to them, you know, there is no silly question, there is no stupid question, so please feel free to ask, my door is always open. Um, so it's wonderful when senior clinicians are able to do that. Absolutely, my background is in hospital medicine and that certainly is the way we were trained it was it was a blame culture and there was a culture of ridicule among certain specialities towards their juniors but we see it more and more in recent years that there is a shift in individual teams led by their consultants as leaders where there's a shift away from that blame culture to what is being um, termed a just culture, which is looking at incidents in a reflective way so that everyone can learn and flattening that hierarchy so that the junior members of the team, as you say, feel that they can approach the more senior members of the team without fear of ridicule. Um, and studies have shown that errors are less likely to occur when that hierarchy is flatter. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to be completely flat because there has to be a leader and the consultant is the ultimate, uh, bears the ultimate responsibility um, at the end of the day, but definitely encouraging reflective practice and learning from mistakes does reduce, um, does reduce repeated mistakes. Um, so uh, open communication, and this is, it comes back to that communication point again, doesn't it? Open communication between team members allows that reflection and allows that learning. Um, so there are issues for the leaders, there are issues for the organisations in terms of their policies and procedures, and there are also issues for the individuals to help reduce um, these adverse incidents. So if you were going to um, give our leaders, our, our listeners, three take-home points. What would your take-home points be from this case today? I think we've covered a lot of ground in what we've discussed. And for, for the individual clinician, I would say that um, part of the reason why we make mistakes is because we haven't taken care of ourselves. And so that's including just even simple things like making sure that you've had lunch and are able to keep hydrated and just being aware of when you're not at your best, i.e. when you're pressured and rushed and, uh, you know, tired and all of those kinds of things. So the first thing would be take care of yourself, look at the systems that you've got in place in order to make sure that patients don't fall through the cracks. And those things are like uh, writing down tasks or setting tasks for yourself on the computer, making sure that you have a good system so that results don't get missed, making sure that your clinical notes are up to scratch. Um, and don't be afraid to ask if you're not sure. I think we all have to ask at some point. And as a GP, I often ask my colleagues, uh, I often ring the specialists at the hospital if I'm not sure and uh, 
you know, really good doctors are, are not afraid to ask for help when they need it. I think that's right. And I think that's a perfect way to end the podcast. Um, so thank you very much, Sam, for coming and speaking with me today. Oh, you're welcome. And with that, we reached the end of today's podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Sam. For our listeners, if you're a member of Medical Protection, please do use the links in the podcast description to learn more about today's podcast and to access the certificate for listening. I've been your host, Ellen Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>